<laughs> On a bumper-sized, jam-packed, two-part scary Halloween-themed Empire podcast this week, we have more guests than you can shake a stick at. We have, count them folks, Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns, director <gasps> and writers of Last Night in Soho. We don't want money. We don't take fame. You don't need a credit card to know that Huey Lewis is going to be on the show to talk about all things Back to the Future. News to me. <laughs> then there's a chat with Zack Snyder and Matthias Schweighofer about Army of Thieves. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, no. You want more? No. Sure. Yeah, this is this introduction losing steam rapidly. <laughs> uh, how about Andy Circus going full spoiler on Venom? Let there be cats up. Carnage. Ooh, Ooh. Carnage. Let there be carnage. Ooh. What's that? You think we need one more? You I think, think we, we need, need one more? more? Not another one. All right. <laughs> we'll get one more. I don't know why you went to West Country for that. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I've, I've lost the run of myself early. Uh, anyway, yes, it's Jonathan Majors, star of The Heart of They Fall. Boom. Whoa. Bang. Crash. Wallop. What a lineup. All that and more on the movie podcast that used to be a werewolf, but it's all right now. Oh, I misread that. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Uh, now. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, it is, as you've already heard, a genuinely what have I done booking everybody in the world jamboree, jam packed with guesty goodness. Uh, and as a result, we're going to split this into two parts. So in part the first, you're going to have a couple of guests and a couple of bits of the show. Uh, and I am joined for that by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Ben Travis. And he's put his phone on silent. Hello, it's on silent now. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just had to tell everyone I know that this podcast is getting a part two because I know for a while we weren't sure <laughs> if it was going to get part two. Yeah, and I it was like, it would be heartbreaking just to have a one part pod and then just be left hanging with all this other goodness to come. You've got to give the people what they want, Ben. Yeah, man. Yeah. People showed Us. up for part one and now podcast part two. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for both. They demanded it. They I, demanded part two. I don't understand this two. reference. <laughs> We're also joined, of course, by our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Dune! Sorry. What are you doing, man? Seriously. <laughs> Sorry. Dune! Sorry. I'm going to try and say... Other- Dune! No, it's Hang too on. late. It's I too late. Mic- whatever, you, you've, you've broken the microphone. I can't you've stop broken it. The microphone. I can't stop it. Dune! Uh, did you know that uh, Timmy Two Meets was in Camden just recently? I saw recently. the picture. So he Instagrammed a picture of himself coming out of the Camden Odeon. A few people tweeted recently. Helen O'Hara is also here. Our geek queen. Hello, Helen. Hello. Hi, Helen. Well, I'll address this question to Helen then. As <laughs> okay. people tweeted saying, we don't understand the Timmy Two Meets thing. And I was going to explain it to them and then realised, I also don't understand the Timmy Two Meets thing. Where does this come from and what does it mean? I don't it, understand it's it. It's from Chris's interview with him. An enjoyably chaotic interview with, with Timmy Two Meets himself. I and listen to nothing that Chris does. So. Somebody and, else. And, and who, the Hammerman. Um, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. talk about Ar- yeah, Army anymore. Hammer. Yeah, why? Why don't we talk we about Army Hammer? talk about that so much. I don't know... What is it? What's, what's wrong? Fine actor, great body of work. Yes, so I interviewed Army Hammer and uh-huh. Timothy Chalamet a yes. couple of years ago whenever Call Me By Your Name. Call me oh, by God. your oh, name. No. Call me, call me, call me by your name. Oh, yeah. That came out 
and uh, we were we we just had a bit of a we were having a bit of a laugh, James, and we were having a bit of a laugh about nicknames and what Timothy Chalamet's nickname might be. And I don't know how, but it ended up that his nickname was Timmy Two Meats, and he was some sort of mafia butcher. Anyway. Go back and listen to the podcast. Maybe blank out the bits where Army Hammer speaks if that's what you if that's you know what helps and get you you know get you through, uh, and go back and listen to that. And so ever since I've called him Timmy Two Meats, and it's a it's a inside joke that only uh, Timmy and I get. Clearly, as and, and if, I, by the if I said it to his face now, he wouldn't know what the fuck I'm talking no, about. He absolutely so wouldn't. that's good. So, so basically, you get it, and some people who still remember that one episode of the podcast. Yes. Wow. Yeah. There's Absolutely. niche in jokes, and then there's whatever this is. Yes, but uh, but anyway, now he of course is in June. Send me by your worm. Send me, send me, send me by your worm. Oh yeah. That will not I be. I don't. That's not hype. No. Okay. No. Never mind the gob jabbar from June. Uh, I'm now going to make my three colleagues of such lethal cunning go through my own personal gom jabbar or their own personal gom jabbar in the form of a very impromptu, very late. Three fact structure. I've, oh yes, has, folks. I thought this segment got retired many, many weeks ago. Yes, like, but then this became a two-part podcast, and I need to oh, bulk it out a little bit to have the guests either side of that. So, so just to be clear, the podcast is far, far, far too long. So you were going to remedy this? Yes. Otherwise, one part is going to be way shorter than the other part. I don't so think I need it to has to be. Level. But okay, okay, I have a fact here. All right, Helen. Uh, you are always ready with a fact. Am I? Which I mean, chapter of Women versus Hollywood <laughs> is it from this week? This one is grabbed from. Instagram. Okay. <laughs> Did you write Instagram? Uh, I write. <laughs> well, how, how rich I, are you? I wrote all of Instagram, yes. Okay. Uh, it's about, I know what you did last summer. It is Halloween, oh, so oh, it's oh, a scary no. film. You don't know what I, I did I last do summer. know what you did last summer, Chris. Oh, shit. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, we all just stayed inside. And that did was podcasts. the whole thing. I mean, we yeah, were there well, for uh, yeah, the whole that, thing. That's yeah, that's what we, stayed, we did last summer. But I also know the movie called... I Know What You Did Last Summer, right. starring yes. Jennifer Love Hewitt from 1997. Yes. And there is... The fourth uh, best Hewitt. There, okay. There is a scene that has become quite famous where she basically, uh, they're having a big conversation about, oh, what are we going to do? This dude is trying to kill us. And she goes into the middle of the road and she stands there and she kind of screams, what are you waiting for, huh? Yeah. And it's, it's and become... And the camera's above. And the camera's above and it's a whole thing. Yeah. So apparently that scene was directed by a kid who won a contest to come on and create a moment for the movie. What? Yeah. She said, I have no idea where he is now, um, but he, he came in on set and he was like, I want her to stand in the street and turn around and just scream, what are you waiting for? And she was like, are you kidding me? That's what I'm going to do. All right. And she does it and it becomes one of the most sort of talked about and popular scenes in the movie. And it was directed by a competition-winning kid, according to Jennifer Love Hewitt herself. What? At the next Hewitt family reunion, I'm going to have a, have to a word with her. her. Yeah. Uh, I'll say, excuse me, Leighton, if you don't mind. <laughs> and then go, <coughs> bollocks, Jenny, Jenny, really, come on. Because that's, that's a story. crane shot. So the kid yeah. comes in and goes, all right, <laughs> now we a need crane. a crane. Yeah. <laughs> Denny Crane. <laughs> they may have had the crane already was there. But in terms of directing that moment, apparently it was a child who won a competition or a young person, let's say. Well, did they not say just it looks like a child who'd won a competition? Was that was that what it was? No, it was. I mean, it was. Uh, she described it as a young person. I believe her. It sounds like that worked out better than. Do you remember that Doctor Who episode uh, in the David Tennant era where they got a kid on Blue Peter? It was a competition to come up with a monster for a Doctor Who episode mm -hmm. uh, for the famously maligned episode Love and Monsters, starring Peter Kay, who ended up playing this creature called the Absorbaloff. 
who is uh, yeah. a monster who absorbs people into him. And it's a famously not great episode that ends with, uh, what's her name, who um, was Moaning Myrtle and who played Babu Frey? Shirley Henderson. Henderson. Shirley Henderson. Yes. Shirley Henderson is a leading sort of character in that. And through the course of this episode, she ends the episode as a sentient paving block <laughs> who gives blowjobs to her boyfriend. Sorry. Hang on. What? Yes. Do we watch different Doctor Who? I'm <laughs> no, very I mean, confused. This, this is Russell T Davies era Doctor Who. I don't recall that in. many blowjobs in Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, maybe I've been watching the wrong episodes. But... I will say it was implied blowjobs. Right. It's, it's it's Saturday tea time, whatever. But yeah, it's a really fucking weird episode, and it came out of this competition for a kid to design a Doctor Who monster. And so he designed an alien that sucks off people off camera. That's- so it was something like the the alien absorbs people into him, and their faces like pop out of of Peter Kay's big alien body and then you're busted i'll break your legs (laughs) uh shirley henderson's character gets absorbed into him at some point and then uh, peter k's monster sort of dies but then they manage to save her a bit of her kind of like her face sort of absorbs into the pavement pavement so uh the, the the main guy uh like keeps the paving slab that has her face and then he's like oh we're, we're still in a relationship and like actually things are going pretty well we i mean we're able to have fun in some ways wow, wow. yeah okay. well, i think wow is the way yeah i was gonna say can that fact? be my fact but i actually have um, okay ben has two, ben has okay. two facts. benny benny two facts <laughs> yeah timmy two facts <laughs> meets benny two facts and one of those facts is not that I recreated that to me, the yes. Chalamet pose outside the Odeon Which Camden this lunch. Is it outside or inside? It's outside. It's in the sort of external foyer area. Because, uh, okay. uh, well, it's, it's, it's Chalamet season, isn't it? He's got his Dune poster and well, his French we're dispatch. we're going to hunt him. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's oh Dune God. season, boys. <laughs> Time to back ourselves a Chalamet. <laughs> so did he go and see it at the Camden Odeon? Or did he just go I and think he needed some popcorn the, and... The foyer has the poster for June and the poster for the French Dispatch. Whether he went to see either of those or went to see another film and just happened to notice that the posters for two films starring Timmy Two Meats were there, then he he, he went, oh, let's take a picture of me with the posters. Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe what happened. But between that and Eternals shooting just around the corner, Eternals is out next week, folks. And uh, there is a significant chunk of the movie set in Camden. Wow, about five and, minutes. And us returning to the, the pod booth here. I think nature is healing. <laughs> I can't wait. I still haven't seen Eternals for reasons. But on my return to Camden a couple of weeks ago, the thing that I'd forgotten that I, I love is that on the high street, there is a restaurant and the actual name of the restaurant is All You Can Eat £8.80. And I really, really <laughs> hope when I'm watching the Eternals, I see in the background of one of the Camden scenes, the restaurant lovingly known as All You Can Eat £8.80. <laughs> no spoilers, no spoilers. I'm not going to give anything away. All right. Is that your fact? Uh, no, my fact. Right. I, I thought because it was so last minute, I thought I would steal one you. from my Disney <laughs> podcast. <laughs> this is this is immaculately planned. This is like a Danny Ocean heist. This podcast. I quickly pulled something from the most recent episode of Disney Versity, which is what I do whenever I need oh a, a quick fact. It's my first time on the pod in a while. I've got to, you've got oh, to get that plug. Alive. Ben is alive. I'm alive. Sure I'm here, by the way. I'm on particularly safe ground calling you out for shilling for your other podcast. So I'm just going to no, say you're not. Quietly. Really? You're absolutely no. not. Mm. No. Okay, go. So uh, the most recent episode we did was the Aristocats, uh, which the Aristocrats, the Aristocats, the Aristocrats, the Aristocats, the Aristocrats. Okay. Anyway, no, no to that joke on the podcast, <laughs> Ben. Yes, 
My fact about the Aristocats is that, weirdly, the breakout character from that film was not Thomas O'Malley, the alley cat, or Duchess, Mm -hmm. uh, the lovely lady cat. It is one of the kittens, Marie, the little girl kitten, uh, the little white kitten who is named after Marie Antoinette. That's a little mini fact in there for you. She is the breakout character from this, and she is inexplicably huge in Japan. Japan cannot get enough of Marie from the Aristocats, to the extent that one of the main pieces of ancillary media around the Aristocats is a manga series, a Japanese manga called Miria and Marie, which is about this girl called Miria. And Marie, the cat, appears to her in her smartphone pops out of the smartphone and says, I am Marie, the magical cat. You are going to be trained to be a witch, so come with me. And she takes Miria back to 1910s Paris, to the era of the Aristocats, in order to teach this girl magic. It sounds like a weird, like, Ghibli, Kiki's Delivery Service, but it's in the present day with smartphones, and then it's back in the past. Also, apparently, everything that I've just told you happens in the first six pages of this manga. Huh. Wow. Good fact. Good fact. Jimbo, what's your half-assed nonsense? <laughs> I mean, normally I would, of course, lovingly prepare an incredibly long, drawn-out, and let's be honest, deeply, deeply tedious fact. Unfortunately, I have not today. Hurrah! And in, in many oh, ways... No. what a shame. In many ways, I could have used this time when you have been speaking to come up with a fact. This is the sound of a man desperately <laughs> trying to buy time. <laughs> um... I, I have this one from, from the Twitters that someone oh my said God. to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm now going to read you out this quote-unquote fact, which may or may not be a quote-unquote fact. I mean, we're not sure Helen's was a quote-unquote fact. It is. Fact, I, 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 I just double-checked. And okay. she, I literally have a video of her saying it. I saw her looking it up in Women vs. Hollywood. It's absolutely true. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, as you both know, because you've both read the yes, book, yes, it's d- not in there. Cover to cover. Mm-hmm. It was really good. Yeah. The chapter on Venom was particularly cutting. You're both dead to me. <laughs> Hey, don't drag me into this. You haven't I, read it either. I have read you it. You absolutely have no, not. Test me. Test ben me. might have read it. You have Test not. Test me. Oh, that's the, that is the face of a man who's not read it. No, I have listened to half of it. I'm looking forward to listening to the second half. I mean, I've I listened, listened to, to almost all of it just by doing the podcast <laughs> with Helen. So. I, I uh, get home in the evening and I play Star Wars Battlefront 2 and I listen to Women vs. Hollywood. <laughs> that is everyone's dream night in. <laughs> but anyway, this is my... Fact, Fact in inverted commas, <clears throat> and it comes from someone on Twitter, and I can't tell you who because I screen grabbed it and I cut their name off. So I apologise profusely oh to the person God. who said this to me. Please announce yourself in some fashion. Uh, and it, the the fact is simply this: Charlotte Rampling originally wanted to play Lady Jessica in Alejandro Jodorowsky's failed Dune project, yep. but declined the offer due to a scene that involved two thousand extras defecating at once. I what, hadn't heard what, the what second What was that scene bit. in the Villeneuve one? Everyone shits themselves at the same Presumably time? Presumably in buckets. Chloe Zhao also turned it down. Um, he, I just went for Eternals. <laughs> <laughs> Were they God. all wearing still suits? Was it all recycled? It, it's hard to say. But it's many, maybe meant to be a, a you know control of people thing. I don't, many people I mean, defecating at once. I, you can't I, I, coordinate that. I know well, people the, are fascinated with the Jodorowsky Dune, but I kind of feel like we got away lightly. No, <laughs> we just, might have done. I feel like, you know, God. Lynch's might have seemed positively grounded mm. and down to earth by mm. comparison. I just don't know how you would coordinate that. How would you coordinate well, 2,000 prunes, people having Presumably, lots of fibre. I don't know. But you can't guarantee... <sighs> yeah, everybody's digestive system works at different speeds. Yeah. I mean, that. The, I, I think there would have been special effects, some kind of pipes, think, I don't know. I mean, and presumably, yeah. I mean, the camera can't catch all 2000 in high definition oh my so God. you know you'd have a bit of you know, leeway I with don't the think people they had high the definition back. cameras back then you'd be fine you're all quite right money. 
Surely 2,000 people simultaneously shitting themselves on Arrakis would attract all the sandworms. The sheer force of that reverberating through the sand. It's a rhythmically you do it. God. You know? Anyway, I'm not convinced by that fact, but um, whatever. I mean, I think all your facts are pretty spurious this week. Yeah. Hey, I, have to I say. checked mine. Double checked it. I mean, did you? Did yes. you go to a second source? Yes. Did you? It's in the AV you? Club and US Weekly. Okay. I am going to choose a winner now. Uh, and the winner... I'm looking at Ben. Yes, but I'm you're giving looking it at to me. Helen. Unbelievable. Uh, it's the rule of Hewitt. It's the rule of Hewitt. You, she mentioned Who, a Hewitt. Love. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned a Hewitt. Therefore, therefore, I have to. And also, I, 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 I may have passed out during your fact. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the one about Doctor Who, though. That was good. That yeah, was that good. was really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah that was good. good. That. All it. right. So that's the three fact structure. Who got, God knows when it'll return again, if it returns again. But oh, uh, what there a you shame go. that would be. Oh, See, well. And I'm glad that you all Halloween themed it as well and did scary facts. <laughs> That's the white stuff. cat from the Aristocats? I had a yeah. thousand people shitting at once. How is that not frightening? <laughs> it was as if 2,000 people <laughs> shut themselves in terror and were suddenly <laughs> silenced. I fear something <laughs> terrible has happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, anyway, that is it for the three fact structure. And now it is time for the first of this week's onslaught of guests. Who should we have? Uh, you, you choose one at random. Edgar Wright. Andy Serkis. Edgar Wright. Give us Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. And Christy Wilson-Cairns. And Christy Wilson-Cairns. because well, uh, demanding. They, I can do that because they were together. They oh, were together. Okay. Well, that know, makes it easier. Because of um, the um, COVID rules. They, they were relaxed. They were in the room together. I was on Zoom. Uh, because Last Night in Soho is finally out. It is Edgar Wright's latest movie. It is a psychological horror. It is a visually stunning, time-twisting Detour into the dark heart of London across a couple of time periods. I think it's fair to say, yeah, isn't it? That's, that's fair, fair to yeah, say. Yeah. Fair yeah. To say. Uh, so we will be doing a spoiler special for this uh, with uh, Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Kearns uh, uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks, probably a couple of weeks after the movie is out over here. But this was not that. This was just me having a chat with them. And I've interviewed them a number of times separately for this movie. Uh, and I realized that I haven't really spoken to the two of them together and about the writing process. So at some point in this kind of ramshackle, chaotic interview, we do talk about writing process. But there's some other stuff in there as well, as you're about to find out. Here we go. Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns, do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the co-writers and, of course, the director of Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns. How the devil are you both? Hello. Hello. How the devil are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm okay. I, I had a rough week last week. wasn't COVID, but I'm I'm better now. So yeah, we're all we're all good. TMI, Chris. Come on, let's <laughs> get on with it. You want TMI, Edgar? I could give you TMI. Do you have pictures? Show us pictures. I, I don't have pictures, but I can do like a, a visual interpretation of my week, which was pretty much like <laughs> it was like that oh, for no, like a, a like full that. solid oh, week. I, I, I've been yeah. there. Yeah. I'm sorry. It Sorry. wasn't good. Yeah, it was my last <laughs> night in Soho, and uh, in fact, I think I think I got it from going out in Soho. So um, it feels a bit like a cautionary tale. Is that it's what your movie place? is? <laughs> yeah, it is. Was it a food poisoning thing? Could yeah, you, it was. You want to name and shame the establishment? Have you <laughs> I written don't. a review on the out? I don't because I'm not entirely 100 percent sure it was the establishment in question. But you know, a couple of us went to this place and we came down with something. So. Mm. Stands for reason. Yeah, you don't need to be we'll Columbo. Start investigating. Listen, if you go to a place called Garlic and Shots, you're asking for it. <laughs> yeah, called Lick the Ground. Lick, lick straight from the gutter. It was my Apologies fault. Apologies to Garlic and Shots. I asked for that. <laughs> yeah, we love that. <laughs> 
fair enough. So is is in a in a way that does tie into the movie. Is 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 your movie a cautionary tale about the dangers of of Soho, the dangers of London? Well, I I guess it's more like the you know both of us know Soho inside out, like both have like lived and worked there in, in various capacities over the years, and I think it's more of a thing of just um just. I, you know, I guess we're both people who kind of like think about the past a lot. And it's something that sometimes, you know, people kind of can go to Soho and have a fun time out and never think about kind of the history of the place or, you know, kind of what what goes on. But like, you know, those things kind of start to prey on your mind the longer you 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 stay in the place. So I, I guess in a way that there's an element of the the movie where you're kind of addressing that or trying to kind of like process it yourself, you know? Yeah, your own feelings about it. Yeah, that London is perpetually just a, a ghost town in a way. You walk around any corner, you walk down any any path, you know, Newman's Passage, for example. You walk down that, and immediately, obviously, Peeping Tom comes to mind. But you must be thinking about all the stuff that has happened there over the years that you weren't privy to. Here's a good trivia question for you: Which major, like seventies, eighties, ITV crime series? Chris is shaking his head already. <laughs> which, which? There's a location from a famous like ITV crime series right. that is in Newman's Passage, and it will shock you when I tell you. You, you any guesses? Uh, give me one more clue. And the uh, the the main actor sings the theme tune. <laughs> Minder. Yes. <laughs> so okay, the Winchester Club is in Newman's Passage. You see it in the end credits of Minder. For real. <laughs> real never mind peeping tom never mind anything else that is it <laughs> minder yeah. oh my god i could be so good for you that sounded darkly sexual didn't mean it to but uh <laughs> but there you go um i'm really excited to be talking to you guys together because weirdly we haven't done this before i was on set a couple of times and i've, I've spoken to you both uh you'll probably be thinking at length uh for the magazine uh but i've never actually spoken to you together as I said to you guys before we started, I'm excited to uh, to delve deep into Soho with you guys for for spoiler specials. Uh, but for the time being, I wanted to talk about your writing process on this and how you worked together. Did you write in the same room? How did you approach the script for this? Well, what happened initially was that I had met Christy. I've been introduced to Christy through Sam Mendes, mm-hmm. who said, um, you guys will get on like a house on fire. Spoiler alert. He was wrong. Um, he was wrong about that, clearly. But which he was right. And then and then probably the first time we met, like you mentioned in passing that you had worked in the Toucan in Soho for five years. Yeah. Yeah. And lived around the corner uh, above Sunset Strip on Dean Street. Uh, 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 and maybe this is the place where you got foie poisoning. Um, Chris. <laughs> um, but um so once she'd said that, I said, oh, and, and I'd already had the Soho idea and the story had existed and even been in development for years at this point. I said, I have this story I want to tell you. And then, and then well, then you can tell the next bit of what happened next. <laughs> yeah, we went, we went on a night out um, to some of the like, you know, dingy basement bars. And we ended up in Trisha's and Edgar told me the story of last night. So and I remember just kind of sitting there like totally and utterly enwrapped and um and yeah, you, you, we went off after that. I think he went back to LA and then I got a phone call, lovely Christmas present just right before Christmas. 
um, he phoned me up and he was like, do you remember that story? I was like, yes, of course I remember that story. Do you want to write it with me? Yes. I don't even think you finished the sentence before I said yes. Um, so that, and then you came back to London. I got a, I got a packet of research up to my shin and then I got a list of DVDs that was like my height, like as in like just kind of like to soak up that era and that time. And um, yeah, we got a little office in Soho. I brought a bag of Revels and we started writing. <laughs> Christy exists on uh, Rebels and Iron Brew, which I, I really admire. And 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 don't, don't think that because she's now an Oscar nominee that that has gone away. It's like sort of Fox's party rings and Iron Brew is still is still the uh, drink and snack of choice. The other thing as well was that um, I, I'll add to that that when I called Christy, I decided it was after Baby Driver. It was sort of towards the end of that press tour, which went on for like a year. And um, even though there was some kind of you know, I was being sort of coaxed into sort of jumping into a sequel immediately. Like just the thought of doing another car chase film st- straight away, just kind of, I just, I just, honestly just could not get my head around it. And I wanted to do something radically different. And I've been thinking about this film, but I knew that I wanted to write it with somebody. And I think I only looked at the blank for less than 15 minutes before calling Christy <laughs> and saying, hey, you want to write it with me? But we did also, the thing is that we, to answer your question though, when we had this office, we did sit down and, and write it together. I think in about six weeks, right? Yeah. It was pretty fast, the first draft, because Christy had to go off to work on what would become 1917. Uh-huh. But there was one thing as well as two things. I, I was worried I was going to scare Christy off because the folder of research, which was like the size of a phone book, which was done by the amazing Lucy Pardy, who is a researcher, but also now more known as a casting director. In fact, she won the first ever BAFTA forecasting for rocks she had over the years amassed this incredible like tome of like testimonials and interviews with people who lived and worked in soho in the 60s and people who live and work in soho now and then other things that i asked to research like let's talk to fashion students and other people coming from the country to london and anyway but some of the stuff was incredibly as you might imagine incredibly harrowing so i do remember saying to christy when i gave her the research saying don't read it all in one go because i was worried that you might get kind of like you know kind of spooked out by it and and then on top of that when christy came to the office i put all my index cards on the wall and i thought it started to look a bit like john doe's apartment in seven <laughs> and i thought that she might turn on her heels and walk out again that's my aesthetic is John Doe's apartment in seven. That's what my house looks like. <laughs> I felt it, right at home. Just a spidery serial killer yeah. scrawl on the walls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Remember, buy toilet paper, that kind of thing. <laughs> but she, was also, she was also freaked out by the fact I'd, I'd filed off my fingerprints. <laughs> and that, that did I was concern going, me. That did concern like, me. <laughs> but you had such a good reason It takes for a it. long time. <laughs> I hate it because you were doing your pinky whilst we were working. That, that was the last one. That was just a bit weird for me. Yeah, it rubs a lotion on his skin or else it gets nose again. That's the other guy. I know, but like I'm just, on. I'm conflating them. What can you do? Uh, but so, Christy, in terms of, in terms of like, Edgar is obviously fairly collaborative over the years. He's, you know, you, Baby Driver, you wrote on your own, but you've pretty much worked with a writer on, on everything else. But going into that, even knowing how collaborative Edgar was, what was that first experience like stepping into that serial killer's den of a, of a writing room? I mean, it was just very exciting by that point, you know, because we had hung out as friends. I knew I really liked him and I knew that we were going to have like a fun time regardless. And I think that is like usually 
when you're looking for a co-writer, one of the most important things is that you could spend 18 hours in a room together and not want to strangle them. Um, and I've spent longer than that in a room with you. And not <laughs> once have I tried to strangle you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's nerve wracking. I was such a fan of Edgar and I am still such a fan of Edgar. Uh, so it's nerve wracking going into that room and being like, oh God, I hope I bring my A game today. But no, enough revels and you had chocolate and you were happy. <laughs> it didn't matter if I didn't bring my A game. <laughs> we got told off at one point by the office next door for playing music too loud. <laughs> I think maybe it's because I played Sandy Shaw's puppet on a string three times in a row and at some point saying, could you turn it down, please? <laughs> <laughs> so did you have the music in your head for this right from the off? You had, you had your playlist, didn't you? Your Soho playlist. Well, so in a way like that playlist, I mean, it, it is in a very similar way, to Eloise in the movie, like music is the time machine. Like mm. music is the thing that sends you tumbling back and, you know, is evocative. Well, listen, I wasn't born in the 60s, but like the, the way I started becoming obsessed with that decade was it started with my parents' record collection, which was like a slim box of records that started in 1964 with the first Rolling Stones album and, and no further Rolling Stones albums. That was interesting. <laughs> And all of the Beatles albums from Rubber Soul to Let It Be, but not Revolver, which I also thought was interesting. But my, I never saw my parents playing those records. And also, maybe sadly, they stopped dead when my older brother was born and then they had no more albums. So there's a thing when you're kind of left at home a lot, which I was because my parents used to sort of work two jobs that like I would just kind of be left with these records and, and you'd sort of have to imagine the decade through them. In a, in a time before the internet or even me having a TV in my bedroom and stuff. So in a strange way, like there's a similar thing like for, and I think, you know, for you as well, like that, 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 that music sort of like sends you back, like, but sort of searching for the past in a way we weren't born in the sixties, but like, it's obviously just something that kind of like makes you want to be a part of that. And, and so I think like having the playlist of just like, it was at one point, it was like a 300 song playlist of just like music that I like from the 60s and, and specifically British music from the 60s. So it was something where I'm sort of conjuring up that time in my head. And then throughout the process, some of the things I'd already earmarked. And then whilst we were writing, like, for example, like Christy was the one who suggested the audition scene in the movie, the idea of Sandy having a singing audition. Interesting. So this wasn't something that was in my original outline. And as soon as you said it, I said, oh, she should sing downtown. She should sing Petrilla Class downtown. So I sort of kind of had my hit list of the things that I wanted to include. And obviously there are so many great female singers of that period. Mm. And all of those songs are sort of like these massive, emotive ballads stained with tears. And I wanted to sort of include all of them, you know? Did that even inspire Sandy's name? Yeah, it's the same spelling as Sandy Shaw. There was a weird moment, actually. I don't know if you were even here for this. I was having a meeting in Working Title about the film. And Working Title, their conference room is like glass-walled. And I think I was sitting with Eric Fellner and Naira Park. I can't remember we were talking about budget or whatever. And I like looked through the glass and I saw somebody walk through and I sort of stopped dead and I was just like watching this person walk through. And then I said, was that Sandy Shaw? <laughs> And, and, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, she's having a meeting with Tim Bevan. And I was like, Sandy Shaw? <laughs> like, so, like, so it was like this thing of like suddenly like just felt like this, like a good sign, like literally like being kind of like sort of visited by an angel from the 60s. It's like Sandy Shaw is in the building. Why was I not informed of this? Amazing. I didn't recognize her with her shoes on. 
<laughs> I couldn't see whether she was barefoot. It's true. <laughs> well, there you go. She may, she may well have been. Um, and just real quick, because I know I've got to I'll let you guys go in a second. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into spoilers or specifics, but you're talking there about the, the these reams of research material, and some of it was a little bit harrowing. And and totally, this is a departure from your your previous work. It's it's not a comedy. It's it's intense. It's serious. It's unsettling. During the writing process, what was it like for you guys? I, th- I think I think the thing that was important for us was like to be kind of like true to the history of the area. And I think sort of, you know, in, in our time of being there, we have heard a lot of stories, sometimes secondhand and sometimes firsthand, that are things that make you just stop and think about kind of like who lives there and what their past is and stuff. And um, And that was something that I think was really important. And I think the other part of it is like, there is that thing where like, I think the other aspect of the film is like, in terms of being nostalgic about the past, if you're overly nostalgic about the past, is that like your failure to deal with things in the present day? Mm-hmm. And I think that's essentially what the movie is about is that, that you cannot change anything in the past. All you can do is deal with it in the present and moving forward. I mean, I think with anything like that, tonally, you're always walking a tightrope and it's something that you set out in the script and then you know, that you trust the sort of empathy of the director and the actors to just always get that correct, that always land the right side and and the editor as well. So it was very easy in that sense to trust the collaborators that I was working with in this, to know that they would do justice to those stories. Um, You know, Edgar's such an empathetic director and understood, if not what it was exactly like, to be in that time period or or to to experience those things, he could get very close to it. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, what more can you ask for? And also when you're writing something that is frightening, which I think this is the patriarchy is, <laughs> um, I think you have to be as honest and truthful as possible. So that was hence the material and hence like the firsthand experiences and to just get that right all the way through. Yeah, that was, that was the mission. And, and also to have the perspective of people who were there at the time. I mean, not just like, Diana Rigg and Rita Tashingham and Margaret Nolan, who also appears briefly in like, and Terence and what they had to say about the script and what was in it and from their perspective, but obviously our own parents and grandparents and their experiences of like the big city and all of those things kind of like factor in, in a way that makes it more autobiographical than maybe anybody could quite comprehend, you know, hmm. Well, listen, I'm going to let you guys go. We're going to have a, a big old in-depth chat uh, at some point in the next few weeks as well, which I'm looking forward to. And I will say, because I'm going to bleep out the name of the establishment, if you are going out in Soho today, perhaps avoid uh, that's all. Oh, really? Saying. I heard that place was good. Oh, no, interesting. I really liked the food, but the food did not like me. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Okay, so that was Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns. We'll be talking about Last Night in Soho later on in the reviews section. But now it is time to have some questions from listeners. And it's Halloween, folks. It is Halloween this weekend. And although I have a number of questions that will see us through the next couple of episodes, I realized we didn't have anything that was Halloween-centric this week. So I've, I've asked people for some scary film questions, and they have not Disappointed. Well, let's be honest, most of you have disappointed, but there are a couple of you who have come up with questions that I thought were pretty good. So I'm going to, uh, oh, my word, that's an interesting one. Uh, I'm going to just throw out a couple like I did last week. Okay. Ben, you're a big horror movie guy, aren't you? 
Yes, love the spookiness, all about the horror films, bring it on. All right, here's an interesting one. This comes from at Waltham underscore bear. And they ask, and I'm going to ask you guys this because I actually don't have an answer for this. What horror film has made you emotional at the end? Sixth Sense gets me every time, says Waltham Bear. But what horrors bring on a sudden dust attack in your sofa plex? If I'm honest, I can't think of any. The mist, the mist, the mist, the mist, the mist, the The misty eyed, the mist. Oh my God, the mist. Yeah, I feel like I'm still not I, I I remember wandering around in a nihilistic funk for about six hours when I first saw that film. It destroyed me. Note to self, band name, nihilistic funk. <laughs> <laughs> that, I feel like, is less like tears in the eyes than like cold, hard Existential shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I'm not sure I, I was crying. I think I just wanted to walk into the sea. I feel like ghost movies are a good combination of like spookiness horror but also sadness and yeah. often what ghosts represent like something that just sprang to mind was the orphanage J.A. Bayona's the orphanage yeah. i think is a great shout for something that is genuinely really scary and some of the set pieces in that that the, the one two three knock on the wall super spooky but actually when the revelations mm. come there is a big emotional weight to that and the other thing that springs to mind would be the haunting of hill house which yeah, i know is a series and not uh, movie, but like so much of Mike Flanagan's stuff, I, the thing I love that he does, um, and I would count the uh, like things like Midnight Mass and Doctor mm-hmm. Sleep in mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. is emotion within horror and what those things represent on an emotional level, and I always feel really affected by his stuff on that level as as well as the scary. Yeah, level. definitely Hill House. What, what's his uh, with the film with the mirrors and Karen Gillan? Oculus. Oculus, Oculus as well, actually. I thought I find quite emotional. Yeah, that was good. But otherwise, definitely Midnight Mass, definitely Hill House. Um, also in the sort of uh, you know J Bayona category, th- things like the others, I, th- I find quite emotional at the end yeah. when you sort of realise what's going on there. The Sixth Sense is a good answer, and you know I, I remember the first time I saw it uh, at the end when you find out, and we're not going to give it away. <laughs> One of the most famous twists of all time, but we're not. We shouldn't give it away. But at the end, it all comes together emotionally, and I mm. do remember that that leaving me with a lump in the throat. But as I think I've discussed in the podcast before, I, it takes an awful lot to make me cry uh, at a film. It is something you could never do. Well, you know, I think I've said this before in the podcast, so apologies if I'm just repeating old ground. But, you know, I was very much someone who never really cried at movies. And then when my parents died, you know, separated by a couple of years at least, but that uncorked me to a certain extent. But I, I still, I don't, I don't know. There's still, I, it, for the actual tears to fall, oh, it's yeah. difficult. I, I, well, all the time, movies. I cry all the time in films. Really? Yeah. Time, but it won't be, it, it's often not sad tears. It's often like those like swelling emotion types. So the stuff like in Les Mis, like the one day more type of tears, oh, where you're so consumed by the emotions, you're just tears falling down your face. It's more that kind of stuff that mm-hmm. gets me rather than like, I'm so sad. I, I don't very often, I mean, even some of these horrors, I love them and I think they're really emotional, but I'm not sure that they're necessarily making me cry emotional for the most part. But I, I just think they're really effective. The, the one that definitely did make me cry, if it counts as horror, is Pan's Labyrinth. That, the ending of that film, mm. oh, yeah, that was a gut punch. Yeah. Pan's Labyrinth's really interesting, isn't it, Ben? Because um, you have just... I think it'll be up by the time people are listening to this, right? Okay. <laughs> like, yes, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I know you're. If pain. I wasn't in this podcast, it definitely yeah. would be. <laughs> I know. I know you're pain, Believe me. Um, but you are doing. Tell the people what you're doing. We are doing on EmpireOnline.com the 50 greatest horror movies of the 21st century. 
which has been a, a big undertaking. There has been a lot of squabbling over we these lists. We had some fun meetings about that one. <laughs> this, this is the thing. I think people genuinely think that when we put these lists together, we do it to purposefully be controversial, to purposefully piss people off and get people sharing it. Genuinely, that's not how we approach these lists. Um, and we got together on this one and all threw in suggestions and... It was pretty heated. Initially, I envisioned this as being a smaller list than it is, and instead we bumped it up to 50 because the last 21 years of horror have been absolutely exceptional like i grew up by the time i was old enough to watch horror films i was growing up in a time that wasn't that great it was like the the mid noughties mid to late noughties by the time i was it was like it was all this sort of torture porn stuff which i wasn't that into or well but i still watched when i was way too young um and lots of the like platinum dunes remake stuff Mm. it was all that era and then now, there was still some good stuff in that time and really influential stuff, and you'll see films from that decade on the list. But I think especially the last 10 years or so, and the, the range of horror and the different types of horror that we've had have been incredible. You've got things like your slightly more art house A24 horrors, things like your Babadooks and The Witch and all of that stuff. But then at the same time, in terms of big popcorn horror... The rise of Blumhouse has been an incredible thing. I love seeing filmmakers get the chance to make these films on a, a small but like doable budget uh, and then get these big releases and have big impacts on the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing people like James Wan and Andy Muschietti getting to make like blockbuster horror all out, like big blockbuster movies, but are playing around. You think of especially The Conjuring 2 and mm-hmm. It Chapter 2. I like, I have mixed feelings about It Chapter 2, but the thing I like about it is that it's a huge swing on a massive scale um, as, as a horror mm-hmm. movie and doesn't shy away from that. So I feel like it's been, well, a, a 20 years, but especially the last 10 years, has been a really, really rich playground. And all these amazing like international horror movies mm-hmm. um, that have kind of crossed over and, and broken big from really, really interesting voices. It's just been a glorious time. Mm. It's been a glorious time. And so it has now expanded into the 50 greatest horror movies of the 21st century. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up was because Pan's Labyrinth isn't on there because we're not considering it, for the purposes of the poll, a horror film. And also, you and I particularly have butted heads about <laughs> horror comedies. Yeah. yeah. Because there's no Shaun of the Dead on there. There's no What We Do in the Shadows. And um, I was I was like, these are horror films. But ultimately, we've decided what we the do comedies, in the shadows. I don't think could be considered I think, a horror film. I think it could be, but I don't think it. it there's like Shaun of the Dead certainly has horrific elements in it. I don't know that what we do in the shadows does though, does it? Like it's just full on, just by its very nature. Spoof, though, it's about fantasy. That rationale repossessed is also a horror film. Do you know well, what I mean? Like, I'm not, no one's suggesting that repossessed is one of the fifty greatest horror films <laughs> of the okay, 21st century. It's not 21st century for yeah. some. No, but we're talking about a lot of blood in what we do in the shadows. Yeah, but it's not like scary blood. I don't know. There's some there's some fairly gnarly kills in that mm. that are you know. Am I actually rooting for these people? It's it's very interesting. But you know, listen, this is that argument that Max yeah. calls him once yeah. again. But uh, because I yeah, in case people are wondering why certain movies like Pan's mm. Labyrinth and Shaun of the Dead and yes, indeed, what we do in the shadows aren't on this list. That is that is one of the reasons why. But it's fifty fifty properly scary get under your skin movies, mm. and Pan's Labyrinth is is. He's not on the list, but it can be considered a horror film. Certainly the Pale Man sequence is one of the, mm-hmm. the scariest mm-hmm. things of the mm-hmm. 21st century. Uh, but it's also one of the most affecting um, sequences, one of the fe- most affecting movies of the 21st century as well, I would say. 
Yeah, because I genuinely wonder if I have a, a block about this sort of thing. Because, yeah, there's so many horror films I love that have bleak endings. And you, you maybe you come out and you stagger out of the cinema or off your sofa. And you can't believe what's just happened to your heroes. But I can't... Hereditary. Hereditary? Hereditary. Like, in terms of stumbling out of the yeah, cinema, no. just going yeah. like... Oh. The same with Kill List. But mm. I wouldn't say that I came out... I didn't squirt a view. You know, I wasn't crying, particularly. Like I say, I just wonder if I have a block because I saw on Facebook recently someone was going, "What song makes you cry every time you hear it?" And I went, "None. I've never cried at the song." And everyone, those people were like, "You monster! Yeah. How have you never cried You're at a song?" I was like, "How can I possibly cry at a song? I've never ever cried at a song. One ever. day more, every single time." Or, like, or um, really, uh, yeah. Um, I have been changed for good at the end of Wicked. I can't, I can't put it on at karaoke. I would like to. Can't do but it. You'd be wailing by the Never end of it. Never really? the whole of it. The, the, the song in, in Toy Story 2. When Somebody Loved when Me. When Somebody Loved Me. Can't do that in karaoke Yeah, that either. doesn't make Just me cry. Absolutely slays me every single time. Let It Be. Can't get through Let It Be. Have to skip it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Personal. It's generally but then, beautiful, yes. but also yes. personal if, reasons like, as well. you bring your own baggage to it. Yeah. Like if a song is associated with something traumatic, oh, then fair enough. But I think some songs, like I use the musical stuff, and the Wicked thing is another good example, too, I think because they have so much power and emotion. I think often it is those kind of, those medley songs where all the different melodies kind of wrap together. Like that's, that's some heavyweight stuff. I'm not saying that Les Mis is the pinnacle oh of God. human achievement. He's about to. But yeah. it is. So, you know. Am I, am I the monster? Am I the bad guy? Uh, no, it's James who is wrong. <laughs> um, here's a question from at Ethan Hackett. At Eth Hackett on Twitter. Which film have you had actual nightmares from? 28 Days Later. Most, most obviously, 28 Days Later. It's a little, literally too close to home. You know, when uh, he's kind of Did walking you know, along. Because you grew up in Northern Ireland. <laughs> what, 28 Days Later is in London? He's like... <laughs> <laughs> He's walking along the the empty DLR tracks that used to go to my old house. You know, yeah, like okay. Nightmares, James. Creep Show Two. Creep Show Two f- fucked me up. Creep Show Two. Creep Show Two fucked me up in a big way. There are three vignettes in this. There's the one with the uh, let's just say wooden statue <laughs> for the sake of it, the fact that it's now a little bit problematic. Um, uh, there's the one with the hitchhiker and then there's the one with the ooze. Holy the raft. And the raft is the one that that properly did for me. Like it was just so, so just, so if anyone who's not seen this, uh, some teenagers go swimming out into a lake and there is a wooden raft in the middle and there is a sort of a sentient toxic ooze with ooze which sucks the skin off them. Uh, and one of the guys is, is being, frankly, is sexually assaulting an unconscious woman on the raft and then she rolls over and half her face is missing because the raft has been bubbling up through the bits between the slats. Yeah. It's so upsetting. That's a really bleak ending as well. But I don't know how old I was when I saw this. I mean, I was pretty young. But it stayed with me to such an extent. I think I had quite regular panic attacks after having seen it, like for weeks afterwards. And it coincided quite soon with a holiday to Centre Parks, which obviously oh, is no. quite lake and raft oriented. And I think I went full fucking freak out when I went there. So yes, Creepshow 2. Is that a sp- Stephen King. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, because yeah. I've read yeah. that story and it was—it's a fucked up story. It's really it, I mean, scary. It's properly fucked up yeah. on screen as well. Yeah. The, did you ever read? There's a there's a Stephen King another short story where um it's a it's a guy explaining to his psychiatrist that he's basically messed up because the bogeyman yes ate his two kids one after the other right and then he goes out of the room and has to go back in for some reason and the psychiatrist is gone. And it turns out he was talking to the bogeyman. He was just wearing the psychiatrist's skin. And he goes and opens the closet and the bogeyman gets him. 
really scary. Anyway, I locked my wardrobe door for literally a decade. Whose after wardrobe that. has a lock on it? It was an old wardrobe. It had a lock and obviously Narnia in behind, but we don't <laughs> talk about that. Blimey. Ben. I don't tend to get that many nightmares from scary movies these days. Back in the day, God, I was eight when I watched The Mummy, the Stephen Sommers The Mummy. Great and film. I had nightmares for literally weeks really? after that. But it, yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty young. And like, even though that when it came out was a 12, I think mm. the really? version on home video is 15. But in the cinema, it was a 12. But I feel like you push those limits. The, the very like gooey mummy effects and all the scarab beetle stuff. I had scarab oh, beetle scarab nightmares beetles. Yeah, for scary. a long time. But these days, not so much. But I have had there have been films that have really like freaked me out and kind of stayed in my head. One that's on the list that will be going online is Lake Mungo. I watched quite recently and mm. heard a lot of hype about Lake Mungo, mm. which is streaming on Shudder at the moment. And I'd heard so much about how scary this film was. It's a kind of ghost story, quite a Twin Peaksy sort of story. It's about a, a, a teenage girl who's uh, drowned and it's sort of a mock documentary about her family and picking what happened afterwards. And she kind of had a bit of a secret life that nobody really knew about. And all the way through this film, I was like, this is really compelling. This is really interesting. It's really well put together, but I just don't quite get why everyone says it's so scary. And the film kind of builds to a bit of a crescendo, but even so, as I was watching it, I was like, I am not getting particularly spooked. And then the film ended. And I think it does something even like vaguely subliminal with the way that it uses sound and the way that it kind of there's a really kind of spooky ending to it and it just i just felt it like cling to me and i was in the house on my own upstairs in the bedroom and i needed to go back downstairs to the kitchen and all the lights were off and i was like i mm. i rarely feel this but i do not want to leave this room i feel so <laughs> fucking freaked out by this film and i didn't really have nightmares but that really it takes a lot for me to be like, oh, what's that in the corner of the room? Oh, I don't want to look into that dark area mm -hmm. in case. What if something's mm -hmm. looking back? Um, so that got me hereditary. Again, I'm not sure I had nightmares, but that feeling when when the bad thing happens in hereditary and the 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 horrible twisted sinking feeling of it not just being like a, a horror moment, but like what if just the most horrendous thing happened and you felt the the weight and the responsibility and the grief and the guilt and all of that really twisted me up and I, and that feeling really really stayed with me as well. I think I had weird dreams, if not like outright horror dreams, mm. after Hereditary. Yeah, it's interesting. Those movies that kind of stay with you when you're awake rather than the ones mm. that stay with you when mm. you're asleep. You know, I, I can't really think of too many nightmares I've had. I'm sure I've dreamt about things like Damien Thorne in the past, but yeah. I don't really tend to dream about Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger no. or, or or characters like that. When I saw, I know this is a cliche, but when I saw Event Horizon at university, it fucked me up. Uh, and one of my mm. flatmates, um, housemates rather, uh, for about two weeks afterwards, our, our dreams were It's properly with, frightening. It is. Yeah. It is properly frightening. It's really unpleasant as well. Yeah. It's very gory. Yeah. I genuinely love that film. I think I think it's tremendous. And now it's getting the um, the critical reception yeah. it deserves. But yeah, that, that movie uh, screwed me up. But yeah, it's, it's the things that are staying with you when you're in the house on your own mm -hmm. and you hear a noise and, you know, I, I, I don't live on the ground floor, but, you know, sometimes you you look up and you go, did I, see, did I just see something standing, you know, across the way? Did I just see something flash past the window? What, mm. what the hell was that? Salem's Lot? Is it, you know, oh is it those God, things? Oh my God, Salem's is, you Lot. Know, that little boy. Oh, yeah. Mike, is it Michael Myers down the corridor? You know, did I hear a scratching? You know, Quiet Place, honestly, is something I think about mm. an awful mm. lot That's because I'm walking incredible. around making noise going, would that, would that have got me? Would would I now be dead in the Quiet Place universe because I just, you know, opened a door or yeah. I took out my keys and they went, you know, 
I would say as a cinematic horror experience, A Quiet Place is actually very hard to top. Mm. And emotional as well. Yeah. There's a yeah. there's a character yeah. who oh, doesn't yeah, make it to the end of that really movie. And that's me. that's a big that's a big mm. moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I think yeah. that's yeah. That, that's a good one. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. A quiet place. I mean, that, yeah, yeah, it really is. I know it. I know it, it's. I don't know. It, it, it feels. It felt to me like an instant classic, but it yes. also mm. now feels like maybe it's not one of the cool kids of horror. So I wonder if they hadn't made a sequel, whether people would feel slightly differently yeah, about that. Maybe. I feel for me that the sequel, which I didn't enjoy as much, has maybe in my head sullied the original a little bit. Let's not just say the sequel's a bad film. I'm just very familiar. Whereas I think exactly you're exactly right. When I saw the mm. first one, I was like, "This is a horror classic. Yeah, it instant is. horror yeah. classic." Yeah. It's really good. Have you ever had a supernatural experience? No. Um, no. But I think the closest I've had is a sort of uh, almost like a waking dream thing. So I, I woke up one morning and was absolutely convinced that there were zombies on either side of my bed. Zombies really get into my head. I like not, not screaming nightmares, generally speaking, but like just zombies. So, and I woke up and I was afraid to open my eyes and I was afraid to move because I felt like the moment I do, like, that's when they're going to pounce. If I open my eyes or I move, they're going to pounce. And I was absolutely convinced there was one on either side of me, despite the fact that in this was my childhood bed, one wall, one bit was against a wall. So, like, there's literally no room for a zombie to be on my right. It, You know, but I was, I I was applaud, absolutely certain of it. I applaud the fact that in your head, the zombies, like the T-Rex, have vision based on movement. Yeah, so, I know. You know. Well, actually, if they, if they were waiting for hell to open their eyes, their movement would have been based on vision. That's true. Whoa. <laughs> like Whoa. like uh, the modern masterpiece, speaking of instant classics, that is Bird Box. Oh, so, no. yeah. oh God. We saw Bird Box together. I know. And and I I was, out, it's amazing. You went, it was shit. I was like, <laughs> I was like that was, yeah, it was okay. I had some good bits, and you were like, this. Oh, my. You were rattled. I by loved that. it so much. I yeah. love Bird Box. I've never watched it since. So mm. I, might, I might suddenly be like, oh, dear. No, I loved it. It was great. Ever had a supernatural experience, Jimbo? While watching Bird Box or just otherwise? <laughs> just generally? Uh, no. No, I have not. Ben? No, nothing supernatural. Uh, kind of jumping off Helen's point. Mm. Um, ooh, Helen, supernatural nipples. Uh, there we go. Yep. Shirts, whatever. Um, <laughs> that was a half-assed in joke, if <laughs> ever there were one. Shirts. <laughs> um, I for a while I haven't had it for a long time, but I have had sort of semi-sleep paralysis, which is fucking terrifying. Mm. Oh yes, where I've been asleep mm. and I can I, I feel like I'm awake in my body on the bed. And I, but whatever I do, I, like I can't open my eyes. I have to like wrench my eyes open, and then I sort of like physically drag myself back to consciousness. And it's one of the most horrible feelings mm. um, that it feels at the moment. In the moment, like something supernatural is yeah. happening. Feels like you some, feel yeah. like you are awake, but with your eyes closed. But then when you actually wake up, you realize you were asleep. Mm. I've had that. I've had that ever since I was a teenager. Mm. Uh, I get it every now and again. It's it, it's not good when it happens. Uh, I've had uh, the experiences where I have felt you're feeling a sort of weird sort of hinterland between uh, waking and and sleeping, and but you're you know you are asleep. It's night terrors yeah. essentially. Although sometimes sometimes I've had them just napping during the day and stuff. But I've had that thing where it feels like you're being weighed down, and you can feel a presence in the room. Uh, and it's a malevolent presence. Have you ever had this? I've I've yeah. felt this before, and I've had I've heard laughter in my ear. Ooh. The dark. I'm not fucking with yeah. you. Genuinely, I've I've had this before. The weight element of it, I've definitely felt yeah. like in those moments. And then sometimes it would be a sort of dream where I'm like lying on the surface of a planet, like perfectly horizontally, and I'm being pulled mm. down. But I can feel it in my whole body. And again, that thing where you like 
you feel like you're lying down with your eyes closed, but whatever you, you do, you can't force your eyes to open mm. is is not good. I can't yeah, decide whether this is a podcast or therapy at this yeah. stage. Yeah. Chris, have we both been to the fervor? <laughs> we may have been. We may have been. But, you know, I haven't had a supernatural experience per se, but when my dad died, uh, I had something that I can't explain. Uh, and uh, I've never really been able to explain this. So when my dad died, um, he was lying in state in my sister's living room, which is where he had passed away. And uh, my father, my wife and I, she had flown over to be with me. And we were standing, it was nighttime, and we were standing watching, just in the in the room with him, you know, just talking to him, you know, his body. And the door was closed behind us. And we were just talking about him, you know, you know that's my dad, obviously. And the door, suddenly the door, had the handle of the door behind us rattled for a good five seconds, just rattled. Like I even turned to see it rattling. I was like, oh, what the hell's that? And I went, opened the door and went, who was that? Nobody there. No one there. No one around. Called out my sister. She was upstairs. The rest of her, you know, her kids were in, in completely different rooms. Don't know what that was. Don't know what it was. But might have been something. Might have been nothing. Who knows? But it's as close as I've ever come to supernatural experience. Oh, I also I did get possessed by Satan one time. But anyway, that's for another <laughs> podcast. Uh, real quick, real quick. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the twist that you still are. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Uh, really? I, I, I thought I'm that was kind of possessed by the ghost of Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, I'm going to need salt and flame. Thanks. <laughs> uh, real, real quick. Uh, I really like this one. This is from uh, at I am bod. Which movie death would be your personal worst, as in oh, the God. one you would least like to have? My immediate reaction is all, all of, of them. them. <laughs> but there are, in fairness, some that would be preferable to others. There are ones that, you know, David Warner in The Omen, okay? It's a showstopper for death. You're, you're decapitated by a flying pane of glass. It's over quite quickly, though, isn't it? Uh, but then wouldn't you live for another few minutes afterwards? You, you'd be aware of it, so. wouldn't you? Only if you're possessed uh, by yeah, Satan, no, the, Chris. Well, it's, it's seconds, I believe, for um, for decapitation. But the, the, I thought it was minutes. Some... But okay, that that seems interesting. unlikely. No, there, there is, there is, there is a, a you know, there's at least a Who little bit ask? of consciousness. No, they've done, they've done studies on, I guess. Who's doing these studies? I don't know. Maybe they just brain decapitated animals. Brain, but yeah, brain, brain function, function lasts continues. a little bit. I mean, my brain barely functions now. <laughs> well, that's fair, I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, that's a showstopper for death. That's one people are going to be talking about for weeks to <laughs> weeks to come <laughs> after that, you know. Yeah. But I wouldn't want. I wouldn't I, like really horror. Any of the things in hostel where you're being tortured yeah, and people are like no, drilling, drilling your Achilles. Seven. Mm -mm. Oh uh, God! Three words. End of martyrs. Oh no! You don't oh, want no, that. Thank you. Ooh, you don't want that. God, no. mm -mm. The bees. The bees. Not no, the bees. Also, no to Wolf Creek. Um, yes. Just a hard Head pass and all of that. No, mm -mm. no, that's bad. That's bad. Uh, you want it to be quick. You do want it to. Be, uh, I, I wouldn't want um, the vanishing, for example. I wouldn't want to be buried alive. Oh, buried alive. Oh no. Gone. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's nasty. That's no. some nasty, nasty shit. Remember that that Hitchcock story about the, the trying to escape from prison, and uh, she, she, this guy, the, the guy who's going to help her go out is the caretaker, and he's going to bury her in a coffin and then dig her up. And she lies something about he can't see, can't read a message, and she lies to him, and then she turns around and he's the one she's buried in the coffin with, so he can't no. dig her up, and she's going to die in there. That was nasty. Yeah, that's uh, not good. Hmm. 
Okay, so just none of the torture porn, thank you very much. No. None of the torture, none of the long drawn out uh, eaten by scarabs has got to be pretty bad. That is not. I do. I do not want that. No. You know. No. no. Uh, absolutely not. But like eaten by sharks, like sort of Samuel L. Jackson and Deep Blue. Oh scene. no! But that was really quick, wasn't it? Like you, also, he was doing a very tedious monologue. So <laughs> hey, that, was a, that was a great monologue. You think water's fast? <laughs> oh, Try ice. ice. And the sharks like nope. <laughs> Going back to uh, Helen's fear of zombies, I would not want to be eaten by zombies. No, that does not look fun. Mm. I, one of the greatest deaths in, in horror movie history is Captain Rhodes, the bad guy from Day of the Dead, who um, gets ripped in twain by the zombies. And again, it's fairly quick. He dies fairly quickly after that. But there are a number of, of uh, but he gets to yell, choke on him as he's literally being ripped in two and the zombies are feasting on his intestines. Uh, that, that, I know. No. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want just a feeling like, have you ever had like something bite into your flesh whether it's a dog or a cat or you know someone you've just paid for the uh, for the <laughs> afternoon it's not it's not fun being no. bitten is not fun folks and you know, to actually have someone bite into your flesh with enough force to rip chunks of it off nope yeah Hard i would pass. query how atrophying sort of rotting muscles would have that kind of you know sheer bite mm. talkage yeah I don't think I think they'd be Look, gummier. I think we I think we know that <laughs> zombies make no sense. Like yeah. I feel like that that goes as right. How yeah. about just sort of like Mars Attacks or War of the Worlds? You know, Stephen Steven Spielberg edition just being wiped out, just death like ray. push death ray, just death yes. ray. That'd be quick. So quick. That'd be quick. Very quick. That's a But not, and this is really crucial, having your head taken off and put on a chihuahua. So you know, death ray. Yes, chihuahua. No. For right. me, all right. I think the other side of zombies is bad as well. They they do that a lot in things like The Walking Dead, the slow terror of becoming a zombie mm. yourself, uh, yes. and the inevitability of that um, is is the other flip side to being physically torn apart by them. You know what I don't want to be? I don't want to be scared to death. Right. So like in The Ring or Ringu <gasps> or The Grudge, because I it's still never entirely clear how the creepy ghosts in those movies kill people. The obvious answer is they just scare you to yeah. death. Yeah, I no. don't want to find out. I don't. Hard pass. I'm okay with not knowing how they kill people. I would just Seven like to never days. go. There's no need for that. Like the 2,000 people in June, the shit was literally scared out of them. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I think that's why... I think that's how they did it. It was nothing <laughs> yeah. to do with diet. They just scared the shit out of them, literally. Oh, God, can you imagine the cosplay as the fans hit the shit? Oh, no. That would not be good. Anyway... But the, the, the oh, ring, God. people frozen in like sort of rictus terror mm. um, with no clear explanation, just that, yeah, they, they just whatever they saw, whatever they witnessed was so incomprehensible that they just stopped living. Yeah. Is, is, Lovecraftian yeah, death. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I would also not like to die in the descent, like any of the deaths in mm. the descent. I would also like to give those a hard pass. I do not want uh, to be stuck on that ledge with the mutants underneath me. Uh, having gone completely mad, uh, yeah. that that is not a fun way to go. No. Uh, this has been a fun. This is, <laughs> this is, I'm really in the mood now for Halloween. Oh, so, oh it's a lot of fun. A oh. lot of fun. Great, great, great stuff, everybody. Well done. Thank you so much for your questions. If we didn't answer your question, then I apologize, but look how long it took us to do three. We're good for the next couple of weeks, but if you do have any questions for the Empire Podcast and you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, and get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide in my DMs, you can reply to any of my hilarious tweets, or you can wait for a panicked shout-out every now and again. All right, let's bring this part of the podcast home with another guest 
Who do you want? We have Jonathan Majors. Yeah. We have Huey Lewis. We have well, Zack Snyder and Matthias Schweighofer. And we have, oh, we'll leave Andy Serkis to the end. So we have one of those three. Well, we're about to do the news. So Huey Lewis it is then. All right. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it is time to talk to Huey Lewis. Yes, Lee Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis and the news. Uh, the man who's the power of love is synonymous with Back to the Future. And of course, Back to the Future, the musical, is on right now in London. It Helen, is. you went to see it. I did. Very good. It was really good. It's, it's very, I think some of the songs I didn't love, especially at the beginning. They get better as they go on. And obviously, let's be honest, the power of love and Back in Time are the best ones in it. But, um, but the staging is off the charts. It is so cleverly done. You will believe a car can go back to the future. Okay, <laughs> that pithy line. Um, <laughs> all right, so Huey Lewis was in town last week uh, because they had uh, announced that October 21st is Back to the Future Day. I presume that's when Marty goes back mm-hmm. in time. Okay, good. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's why. That's why it was Back to the Future Day and Huey Lewis was in town. Helen went along, actual in-person interview. Yep. Uh, to talk to the great Huey Lewis, who is not just, of course, linked with Back to the Future in film terms. American Psycho talks about him in mm-hmm. great detail. He was in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. He was. Uh, but anyway, Helen went along, had a good old chat with him. It was handheld mics, so it I'm was. not sure if it's a little bit of interference. I haven't listened to back to it yet, but I'm, it should be I'm okay. hoping it's okay. Um, yes, he, he, fingers crossed. Um, he also talks a little bit about his deafness, which means he can no longer perform on stage. So he's still songwriting, but it's it's very difficult for him now to commit to public performance because he doesn't know from one day to the next what you know what stage his hearing will be at. Oh, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's a shame. Oh man. So there we go. Here we go. Helen talking to Huey Lewis. Sons, the news. Enjoy. All right, so I'll get this going. So I saw the musical what, two days ago now. Absolutely stunning. I've never seen as something as well staged as that. It was, it was really impressive. So have you seen it a, a bunch of times? Was no. This, no. I just saw it last night for the first time. Are you kidding? Time. Yeah. Oh, wow. What did you think? It was amazing. <laughs> as you said, it's amazing. It's amazing on a lot of levels. I mean, uh, the, it's, the production is amazing. And then, then the performances are amazing as well. Yeah, and it was and it was amazing how much they captured the the original characters as well. I thought that was that was super impressive. I thought so as well. I thought so as well. Biff is unbelievable. They're all very very talented. You know, music the, musical theater. I was just saying, might be the most what of uh, involved, most difficult, but most ultimately rewarding artistic expression that there is. Yeah. Because it encompasses so so much. You dance, you sing, you act. The theater's live. It's different every minute. It's a, it's a just a wonderful experience. Musical theater is, is it for yeah. me. Because you, you've written a show as well, isn't that right? Well, we do. We have a show that we're trying to get to Broadway. We put it up in San Diego and did real great with it. And, yeah. and now we're in line, you know, with our fingers crossed. It's, it's such a such a timing game and everything but uh but the 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 real thrill uh, for me is the people you work with people in musical theater are by and large talent more talented and 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 more humble at the same time more self-effacing and and they're just great people they're smart funny and wonderful to work with 
let's talk about Back to the Future because I think we're a film magazine, so every single reader we have, every single listener to the podcast is pretty much a Back to the Future fan. So, you know, you, you, I think when you were called in to meet Bob and Bob and Stephen, were sort of saying, I have no idea how to write a film song. What, what, does, that, what does that look like? How did, it, how did it work? How did it happen? Well, very organically, unfortunately. I, I wish there was a much better story. <laughs> but but the fact is that they uh, they said, um, yeah, we've just written this film and our lead character is Marty McFly and his favorite band would be Huey Lewis and the News. So we thought about you and how would you like to write a song? And I thought, great. But as you said, never read it for theater, uh, for film rather. And uh, not, that, not that it would be all that much different, but... And, and I told them that I didn't fancy writing a song called Back to the Future. And they said, oh, that's okay. We just want one of yours. And I said, well, actually, we're working on a song right now that might work great. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll just send you the next couple of things we work on. I said, great. So I went back. At, we, were, we had Power of Love was an idea at the, at the time that Chris and I had had. And we put it down on demo tape. And I sent it to Bob Zemeckis and, he, uh, and Bob Gale. And they... Collectively, the the they said, oh, they loved it, but it needed to be more up, as I recall, something about up. <laughs> and so I, I realized that the verse is in a minor key. So we went and wrote the the intro. I think Johnny actually contributed the intro, uh, which is a big major uh, intro, and Bob loved it. And I still wasn't sure. I hadn't seen the film, and I hadn't. Uh, 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 read a script or anything, oh, wow. and so um, I wasn't sure. Then by then they had a rough cut of the film, and I sent the I sent the song to. They loved the song. They said, "Great, would you write another one for the uh, for the credits?" And they sent me up a rough cut of the film, and um, and when I watched it, I thought, "Ooh, that, you know, I don't know how they're going to use power love here. It's not going to. There's no love object necessarily." And they used it in the chasing wonderfully. And then, of course, we wrote back in time for the uh, for the credits. For the credits. Yeah. yeah, that's easier to rhyme uh, than what, what, future. Back in time <laughs> than future. Yeah. yeah, you know, you know what's interesting. I'm mean, just not to digress, but it's interesting that the reason I think uh, uh, power of love and and back to the future, uh, the reason one of the reasons the song has become so popular and and so iconic is that it isn't strictly about the movie. It doesn't tell the story again. It's a different leg of the table, if you know what I mean. They they come together tangentially. Yeah. And and I think that's interesting and and makes a lot of sense when movie for movie makers, for example, if you want to use music in your movie, it's great to find a song which works sort of tangentially that doesn't retell the story. Is that why you haven't done many film soundtrack songs since you know there must have been offers i guess after this yeah yeah well sort of yeah i mean we had i think we have done it we, we have given songs to a few but mostly sort of independence things that uh you maybe know a lot of people don't see but yeah i and, and you know i'm always intrigued but it it does have to work you know you have to be inspired by it and it does have to work yeah so. And tell me about your cameo as well. You based your character on the head of your record label. Is oh, I right? heard that story. Yeah. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, yeah, it's a funny story. Yeah, um, well, that was Bob Zemeckis's idea that I that I that I be sort of in the in the film somehow, and I I resisted it at first, but I, I, we agreed that if I would be uncredited and disguised, then 
then it would, be, it would be kind of fun just a little you know like a little cookie in there yeah. so so when i came to the shoot uh for the i had no idea what the part would be he said we'll take care of you and they they, they were in my wardrobe in my dressing room, which was this ugly brown sport coat and a tie that didn't match and brown shoes. And it reminded me of the head of my record label, Jack Crego. Jack, I apologize for this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, who dresses like that was a wonderful guy and a great and a great head of CBS. But he was a real brown shoes guy and he talked real slow and deliberate. And that's kind of so I I immediately thought of him, and when I put on the wardrobe, I channeled Jack Crago. And um, when I next saw him, the funny story is he said, uh, "Huey, um, I saw your performance in Back to the Future, and uh, I want you to know, I think you deserve an Oscar, <laughs> or maybe I do." <laughs> so he got the joke. That's amazing. <laughs> and what was your reaction when you saw the finished film? Did you realize it was going to be what it's become? Did you realize it was kind of a classic? I, I, I thought it was really good, but I didn't know it was going to be this. I mean, you know, <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be Wizard of Oz. I mean, it is, it's insane what the film has done. And we have a, sort of a reunion every five years, you know, and because there's, you know, the 25th, then the 30th, and now the 35th. And so, and it, and the film keeps on growing. Strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just that good. I think it's just. It is. It's just, uh, people ask me why is it? Why is it a? Uh, you know what? What's the key? What's the secret? Why is it good? Well, it's good for a zillion reasons. It's good because it's a good idea. It's well written. It's well produced. It's well directed. It's well acted. The music is good, and all those little things are all those little boxes are checked, and that's. That's what any, you know, film or these complicated artistic expressions are just that complicated. And you got to check each box. Every single, every single item. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of every single item uh, in, in the play, in the, in the musical, without giving anything away, there is a character called Unky, Uncle Huey, who is a record executive. Do you get casting approval for him or anything? No, I got nothing. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I didn't get any, any, I didn't get any credit for set design on the Power of Love number either. Oh. By the way, you know, on the number when Marty sings Power of uh -huh. Love? Yeah. And the logo comes, I, I should get credit for that. That's, well, no, if you look at <laughs> our, our logo is very similar to that. It's, it's oh, all, nice. I didn't they, pick that up. They pinch certain things there. Yeah. Just little Easter eggs. And all they wanted was a set design credit. <laughs> And I wanted to ask as well, more generally about your acting career, because you've done a fair number of films through the years. So, I mean, something like Shortcuts with Robert Altman, how did how did that come about? Uh, well, Bob Altman just, you know, he's a music fan. Mm. He was a big music fan and he liked the music. And I, I had an agent who, Bill Robinson, who knew him and he just, I I, I just interviewed for that. And, and I went out to his place in Santa Monica and he, he was very funny. He said to me, he said, you fish? I said, yeah, yeah, I fly fish. He said, you fly? Oh, good. Yeah, you fly fish. All right, let me ask you a question. He says, imagine you go someplace to go fishing, and you, it's a trip that you've always wanted to do, and you, and you look forward to it for months at a time. Finally, you do it, and you get up there, and you, and you got to pack in. And he says, and you go back all the way in, back to the woods, and you get in there in the evening. And just before dark, you say, you'll go out and wet a line. And you go out to the to the lake that you've just landed while the boys are setting up camp, and you find a dead body in there. He says, 
I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't go out. It's dark. And you got, you're going to have to probably wait till morning. And now the fish are rising everywhere. What, you know, what are you going to do? I said, fish. He says, <laughs> you got the job. <laughs> so it's method acting, really. It was method acting. <laughs> oh, oh, oh it, it's always method acting with Bobby. I mean, he was a, an amazing director in that he would, he would always, uh, first of all, he'd shoot everything in a wide shot. Very few shots, very few close-ups and stuff. He His blocking was so good that he'd shoot everything wide and then a little bit of coverage and not much and few takes. As long as it got better, it would be better. And then he'd cut it right off really quickly and all that stuff. And before each take, he would go to each actor, or certainly the principals, and put his arm around you and say, tell you where you're coming from and where you're going. He'd say, you know, remember, you just this, you're worried about this, you're boom, 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 and you're going to go there, okay? Yeah. And then this guy, boom, boom. And then we were all lavalier mics, so we encouraged you to kind of to kind of uh, ad lib and so on. And as long as, and, you know, he was just amazingly creative. And, and um, you know, you can see it. The other thing, neat thing about Bob Walton is when he would encourage people to come to the dailies which almost no directors yeah. do. And when, when you come to the dailies, it was amazing to watch the takes and because you could see the whole film right mm. there. It was a, a very minimal. There'd be two or three takes, the next scene, two or three takes, next scene, two, and you could see where they were going to just hook up. And the whole film was already in his mind. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I read something, and I, I don't know if this is right, that it was quite a difficult shoot that bit because it was just brutally hot that all the equipment was at the top of a cliff or something and had to be sort of lowered down. So, Oh, and the, you mean in, in the Kern River? Yeah. There? Is that yeah, right? Well, it wasn't easy, but, but, but Bob, you know, he wasn't, he was not a stickler for, for, uh, for perfect in terms of the cinematography and all that. You right. know, he, he was, he, you know, he, he was quick. He was fast. He was just super smart. Um, and I wanted to ask as well about American Psycho. So first you've got that incredible scene in the film. Right. Uh, and then we have your Weird Al Yakovich That's right. performance. <laughs> yes. I mean, which one do you prefer? Well, I prefer the film, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, Christian Bale does a better job than I do. He's a little bit better of an actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little. You know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it was fun to lampoon that. I mean, the reason it was fun to lampoon that, there's a story there. Uh-huh. And that is that they came to us American Psycho. I, I'd read the book, okay, Brad Ellis's book, and um, and clearly he was a fan of not only us but all '80s pop because there was a a bit on Tina Turner and Phil Collins, I believe, yep. and, and and his bit on us was amazingly accurate. I mean, he clearly knew his stuff, clearly had listened to the music and and and, and read up on us and so on, and so that was flattering, you know. And then of course the scene was was gruesome and so on and but you know it's art and now comes the movie and they ask us can they use the the song they paid us handsomely for it and and william defoe's in it and it's an art piece of course boom so now um on the about two weeks before the movie's released they came to my manager and said could they they wanted to do a soundtrack album and my manager says, they want to do a soundtrack. I said, well, what's that going to look like? They said, well, it's going to have hip to be square. And uh, I think there's a Phil Collins tune. And the rest is kind of just source music. I said, well, 
it's not going to be a very good album, is it? Is it? You know, not real. Is it fair to have our fans have to buy another? You know, blah, blah, blah. yeah. So, so can we decline? You know, I mean, no. Is it a part of the deal? No. So just politely decline. Say thanks, but no thanks, which we did. And so they then released a press release on the literally twenty four hours before the premiere of the film that said that Huey Lewis had seen the movie and it was so violent he'd pulled his song from the soundtrack. Uh, you know, kind of gin up attention for the film. And I thought, geez, that's, you know, the show business, marketing, Hollywood. It made me so upset. So I, I had to boycott the film. So I've never seen the film. Oh, really? I've seen the scene. Uh-huh. Because then, then when when uh, uh, when uh, Funny or Die came to us and said, uh, we want to do something with you. I said, what? They said, well, either this, 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 or Lampoon. The, I said, let's do American <laughs> Psycho. So that's how that came. It's it's I mean because you've got it like beat for beat in the uh, in the parody. It's well, amazing. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I did my best. <laughs> I can't. Uh, Christian Bale is a tough act to follow. Uh, yeah, it's, he's, he's he's quite good. I suppose he's quite good. Um, I wanted to ask as well about duets. Now, it's not a film that a lot of people I think saw, but it's a film where you've got this lovely father daughter relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Right. And and it's also you know made by her father, so there was a sort of a there must really? be a weird echoing there. Yeah, it was it, you know, and he wasn't well. He had, he had just contracted cancer, and he had he was he had just gotten well uh, again uh, healthily. I think he'd been through some chemo or something, and so you know we it was tough hours we had to shoot. We we didn't get a lot of rehearsal time, and uh, but it was a wonderful experience. Um, he was. Uh, a, a really good director. She was amazing to work with. Uh, you know, she's just got skills. I mean, I mean, that's it. In a nutshell, she has skills. And uh, and she was so sweet because on the very first, you know, I wanted to rehearse a lot, and they were and they wanted me to rehearse a lot too because I had very little film experience. And um, you know, we sang the song right off the bat. They had the song picked, and we sang the song, did it in the studio, and oh, they loved the song. But and we did the song six months before we we start start shooting wow. the film, wow. and and so I kept saying, "Can we rehearse? Can we rehearse?" And Bruce got sick, and and boom, and then he got drunk. So we never got the we never got any rehearsal. I mean, zero. And so now I go up the day before the shoot. And I'm there, and they show me my my trailer and all this, and Gwyneth and I. Gwyneth is next to her. I hadn't seen her since we'd sung, and I didn't even run a line. You know, I hadn't even, and and so and I was so nervous, so I just summoned up my courage and I knocked on her trailer door, and she answered. You know, kind of in a robe. I said, "Could we run a few lines before I have to go?" And she's and she was so sweet, and she came and ran lines with me and and just made me feel great. You know, yeah. so she she's a real pro, and it was just yeah. a thrill to work with her. And how was I was the singing? Was that that was just easily great. done? Oh, she's yeah. an amazing singer. Yeah. Uh, you know, her, her, her Blythe Danner, her mom, uh, confided in me that she always thought Gwyneth would be a singer. Uh, I think her, I think Blythe's brother is an opera singer. Oh wow! And uh, her, and Gwyneth's uncle was an opera singer, and and she always sang as a kid. And Blythe said she really thought she was going to be a singer. Uh, she's not only a good singer, she's a good musician. She's a good uh, harmony singer. And so she's, you know, very accomplished. Just out- outrageously talented, then. That shouldn't be allowed. Very talented. <laughs> um, so what is your approach to, to acting roles? You know, I guess you don't seek them out, but you just sort of read what comes in? Or how, how do well, you work? What a, what a great question that is. 
That's such a good question. Well, yeah, I don't seek them out. Well, I really love it now, especially now that I can't sing. I got my, my hearing is so bad I can't hear music. So you know, and I love to stay creative. So acting is 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 a way to do that. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know how to seek anything out. Stuff comes to me. I I, I don't see. I mean, I, I I'm so happy to read for things, but but I do things that 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 speak to me. I try, and um, I my. Uh, um, you know, I never went to acting school or anything, but but Bob Altman, Robert Altman, drove me to to location uh, at the Kern River in Bakersfield. It was like a three hour drive, and it was like a crash course in in Seriously? acting. Because oh, wow. I asked him for the bit, I said, I want to say, you know, tell me all you know, and he told me these things. He said, first of all, read the script every day until you know the script solid. Right. And he said, and you have to know what everybody else is going to say as well. Because after all, acting, the hardest part of acting is reacting. It's easy to tell, talk your lines, but it's, it's hard to listen to somebody tell you that your brother just died when you know that's what he's going to say and you have to pretend like you're hearing it for the first time. So you need to know what everybody's going to say. So read the script every single day and find your character. He says, find your character and develop a life for your character, develop a backstory for him, whatever you want to do, whatever you need to call upon till you know this guy so so well and listen to people, listen to your director until you know this guy so well that you can kind of just become him, then don't listen to anybody. <laughs> and and that's, that's exactly what I do. I, I wanted to ask also about a more recent bit, the, the Blacklist uh, appearance as yourself. I thought that was just a really fun fun part so how did that come about well it came about because my documentarian kurt kenny mm -hmm. suggested me for the part <laughs> he also kurt also directs episodes of of blacklist and so on and uh and he suggested me for the part and and kurt kind of rewrote it for me so it was like falling off a log everybody said wow you really are i said yeah let's see i played a rock star called huey lewis not exactly a stretch how did you get in character for that <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually, um, it was a fun part though, because I, as Huey Lewis, I got to act like I was part, part of my, part of the role was an acting role. And, and that, that I got to give a speech where I had to eulogize a guy I, I, I never knew and pretend that he was my muse. And so that was, that was crea creative and fun. And the idea is that he's the guy who inspired Hip to be square. Is that right? No, no, no. Uh, if this is it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Hip to be score was another guy. Another guy. <laughs> <laughs> different, different movie. Different, right. Okay. So that, that's, that's more respectable then. So, I mean, given, given that you're having, you can't tour anymore, um, you are still recording music, but it's, it's harder to tour, I think. Well, I, I'm not recording any. I can't record. Either. Oh, really? Even yeah, not I that? can't oh, do I'm any so sorry. of that. One thing I can do is I wrote a new song for mm. our, our musical called I Want to Be Someone, which I think is great. But, uh, yeah, music is tough. Uh, sometimes I can still hear it in my head. I, in fact, I sing, I get a song in my head and it stays in my head for like four days and then I get another song in my head. But I constantly have music in my head, mm. but I can't, um, I can't hear it. That's, I'm, so, I'm sorry, that's so tough. Um, but does, I mean, look, I'm trying to find a, a silver lining here. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but you know, does, does this mean we might see more of you as an actor? We might see more of you on screen? I hope so. I mean, I, I, I need to stay busy. You know, the Zen Buddhists say you need something to love, something to hope for, and something to do. The love and the hope for is 
the easiest part. Something to do becomes the hardest. And so, uh, yeah, I like to stay busy. Fingers crossed. Well, at least, at least you've got, you know, a musical to keep you going here in London. Well, so, yeah, you know. I'm just proud to be a part of it. I mean, it's amazing because Bob and I are sharing all this, you know, Bob Gale and, and uh, here, and he's such a sweet guy. And this is really Bob's story, you know, and, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, and he's just followed all the way through and he's such a, you know, and, and the thing I like about this, this one is that it's complete entertainment it's it's and you know and it occurs to me the you know i i'm a as i said last night i'm i'm a i'm a environmental guy i really care about the environment a lot i live in montana i'm an outdoors guy i'm worried that man is choking off the planet and and these are really difficult concerns i've just been in in new york where where there we had the uh, a kind of a, a climate conference about the environment and what it's the uh uh, what it's doing to the oceans mm-hmm. and in Florida Everglades and the Bahamas and all. And, you know, it's very depressing stuff. Yeah. And so, and that's, but it's important stuff and, and it's important stuff to be, a, but every once in a while you need a break and nothing rejuvenates you and makes you feel, you know, like, like there's hope and love and you, and you love your neighbors as all being connected it, by just being hypnotized by a great musical theater play you know and that's just a great thing yeah and it's a joyful a joyful exactly play. Yeah. exactly Absolutely. you feel you walk out and you just feel like everything's going to be okay of course it isn't you know but for the moment you feel like it is maybe we can make it okay if that's enough right. of us have a good time because we need we need doc and marty to go to the future and then sort all of that environmental stuff out and come back and go don't worry the planet's going to be clean in 20 years <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Cheers. You bet. And that was Huey Lewis. And that is it for part one of this week's jam-packed jamboree of a podcast. Join us in the next part. We'll be talking to Zack Snyder, Matthias Schweighofer, Andy Serkis, and Jonathan Majors. Plus, we'll be doing the movie news and reviewing a whole bunch of films, including Last Night in Soho, Antlers, Passing, and Army of Thieves. Don't go anywhere, but kind of do. You can get up and walk around and stuff. In fact, you may already be walking around. I, I don't know. I'm not the boss of you. Anyway, that's it. Bye.